I spoke with my next guest uh, a year ago in Cape Cod. John Sovek has so much to offer. This is Coming Out Week. This is National Coming Out Week. And what John and I are able to cover and talk about for you parents is very clearly, very directly, what to do if your teen says, uh, there's something I need to tell you about. And I want to say out of the gate, I want to preface this entire conversation being a facility that specializes with LGBT and Q children, that this thing that you maybe you suspected, maybe you had an inkling, maybe you, but you've been rationalizing and justifying and holding on to this idea of what your child could, should, would be if you had. But this thing that your child is just telling you right now that you are just hearing potentially for the first time is something that they've been living with. And that that speaks volumes as how, as parents, we gotta handle this. So I don't wanna waste any more time because we're gonna be able to talk so much. My guest today on Beyond Risk and Back, thank you for joining me here. I'm your host, Aaron Huey, is John Sovek. He's out of Pasadena, California, which is an old stomp of mine because I went to school at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts uh, down there in Pasadena before it moved to Hollywood. But John, thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome back, my friend. Oh, Aaron, it's so great to chat with you again. We had such a good time last time. I'm excited that we're going to have a little bit more time and really be specific about this, this journey that these kids and these families are going through as they're coming out. You specialize in working with LGBTQ kids. I do. Yeah, I've been doing this work for, wow, almost 20 years now. And, you know, the way I came into it is I'm an openly queer uh, therapist myself. I am an ad- advocate, an educator, an activist in my community. And one thing that I realized in almost all of the grad programs for therapists is we weren't really talking about what is the coming out process for LGBTQ adolescents. How do we keep their family units together? How do we make this a really powerful and exciting process? And that got me into going to a lot of my own training, a lot of studying, a lot of reading to really become an expert. And I now travel the country. That's why we met in Cape Cod last year, um, training other individuals on how to work with this really amazing and exciting population. So, and it's still a very much at risk population, which is one of the reasons why uh, a first reaction from a lot of parents when their children come out is fear. The The bullying rate is higher. The suicide rate is higher. There's there's rampant drug use. Um, chemsex is a massive issue. I just did a podcast about chemsex, uh, chemsex and gay men and, th- and the experience in that community that is still being riveted and rocked by drug abuse and STDs that involve chemical dependency. So these are things that parents have read about. They've listened to podcasts. They've been told about. We're still, the the AIDS epidemic has not gone anywhere. This is is still an issue to deal with. So the fear response, the knee-jerk reaction is fear. Is it justified? Well, you know, it's interesting because I would actually turn that statement completely upside down. And I might suggest that maybe the kids and the people who have not had a supportive coming out process, who have had to hold it on or have been kicked out of their houses or have not communicated to anyone in their family that they are LGBTQ, that those are actually usually the people that we see showing up with mental health challenges, with drug issues, with trying to hide in sex. And it's the idea that if we can create a beautiful, supportive environment, these actually aren't the fears that we're going to see these kids are going to be experiencing in the future. 
you know, it's fascinating too, because everybody usually looks at, you know, sex, STIs, like things like that as the, the coping mechanisms, using drugs, that's what I'm going to do. But the other thing that we found too over time is that a lot of kids will look at like perfectionism, um, trying to be the most perfect kid they can so that nobody will catch on that there's something else to their story. Um, there are lots of different layers on how we find survival mechanisms for ourselves. Is there a survival mechanism that is particular to the LGBTQ community other than their, uh, their pained silence for not feeling that they have a, a supportive environment? You know, I think that's a really intense and really deep question because each one of us, as we travel through this coming out process, is going to find our own survival mechanism. The reason why I brought up perfectionism, because that was mine. I was going to be the most perfect kid. And this stuck with me like all the way probably into my early 30s until one day my therapist helped crack that open. Why are you so hard on yourself? Why are you always pushing yourself to go farther, to be better? And we realized it was trying to mask what I was thinking of my queerness as being a less than position. Because it's really hard if you think about it. LGBTQ kids are the only kids that usually will grow up in a family where their minority status is not represented. So I had two heterosexual cisnormative parents. So as a queer kid, I don't see a model of who I'm going to be in my parent unit. And we look for our parents for cues on how to be and how to survive in the world. And we don't have those cues. We have to search for them in other ways. And a lot of times we'll wander around lost while we're looking for those, how do I be a totally powerful, empowered, beautiful, gay, bisexual, transgender person? And we have to find that on our own often. Transitioning from what you just said into the conversation around National Coming Out Day and why it's important, uh, th I remember about two years ago, there were a lot of videos online of kids coming out and filming the entire experience with their parents. And there's one that stood out in particular where a young boy came out as gay to his mother. And, you know, her response was phenomenal. And she was like, oh, sweetheart, I, I've known and I'm so proud of you and you're so courageous. And he bawled his eyes out and she cried her eyes out. But before he said anything, it was either the father, the uncle, or the grandfather was in the kitchen in the background. And mom sat down and the boy waited till he left. And when it's something that you just said just really struck me when you're a minority within your own family. And I thought about that because mental health, there's, there's a, there's a lineage, right? There's, there's a, there's a golden thread throughout the family. If our race is certain, there's a golden thread. Even if we're adopted, we begin to create a connection within, but, but truly we can become a minority. So what is it about national coming out day? I guess, I guess I'm going to ask the question being, being extremely hetero and unaware, why do we need a day? Why do we need a week for this? Why does this have to have an event around it? Well, if we look back historically as to why National Coming Out Day first came into play, it was back in 1988. And it was in celebration of a big LGBTQ march that had happened in Washington just the spring before. And what it was, it was a statement of saying, basically, that we are here and we are an empowered community and we need to not hide. We need to be seen. 
And what this has done over the 30 some odd years that it's been around is that on October 11th, when people, maybe it's a high level celebrity who's going to be sharing this, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a, another student at school, maybe there's a celebration at school, that people who are of the LGBT community are going to see themselves represented in the world around them. You know, when Michael, Michael Sams, the football player came out uh, years ago. It was one of the most powerful and beautiful moments because first of all, he was a rough and tough football player coming out. And second of all, he was a high profile man of color coming out and a man of color who was also a sports star. And you see how all of those layers of him coming out and owning who he was in a very public forum means that some kid growing up somewhere who sees that says, that's me. That's okay. I feel so much more complete inside and maybe I don't have to hide and maybe next year I'm going to come out on National Coming Out Day. So when you when you talk about that there's there's two questions that come up and and, and when you talk about a, a child saying next year that tells me that there's there's a process there's a journey involved in this there's some steps that this this kid is going to go through or that any anybody who decides that they're going to come out is going to go through it's like we identify uh, um you know the steps of change uh, the the steps of decision making the steps of addiction are, have has your community said, hey, here's our steps. Here's literally what we all went through that we've identified is that this is our process. Well, you know, it's really been interesting because there have been models that have been in place since around the 1970s. And in those early models, they provided like the first framework of how coming out could be seen as a process. The thing that was challenging with those early models is they were basically based on studying white gay men. So they didn't encompass the entire LGBT community. Over time, new models have developed. We're starting to express more fully into that. And just recently, I've been doing a lot of work myself to try and coalesce this into a way that I can communicate it really deeply, but really quickly to families and parents. And here's what I look at now is when we talked about like the kid might come out next year, the first step I think is a period of introspection where I'm looking inside, I'm noticing that I'm having an attraction to somebody, or I don't feel affirmed in my assigned gender. I'm having this thing of knowing there's a difference inside of myself. I'm feeling it really strongly. And we take this journey inside to try and figure out what that might mean. Do we look around our community and say like, you know what, my family's like really cool. We went to a march with some neighbors. We have gay relatives that come over and affirmed in the family. This could be really cool. I could do this very safely. Or we might look around and say like, there's a politician talking about LGBTQ rights and one of our parents flips the channel and say, we're not gonna listen to that. We take those messages in. So with this introspective phase, we're looking at what would it be like for us to identify as LGBTQ and how would it come back to us in our community? So that's what I would call the first stage. The next stage I would call is identification. And that's where I look out there and I say, yes, that is me. And that's where the National Coming Out Day allows us some reflection to, to attach to that. And in that phase of identification, we take ownership of our queer identity. We take ownership of who we are, and we start to put that into the fabric of our, our being. Um, the way I like to describe it is that this phase, 
often and uh, use an example of just like a, a kid coming out as gay is gay becomes the number one thing on my list of how I describe myself. Okay. And I want the world to see it. I want the world to know it. And we start identifying, we start dating, we start socializing, we start looking at media, we start informing ourselves. And that's part of this identification journey. And then finally, there's a phase that I like to call integration. And this is where we start to affirm ourselves in a, our queer identity connects to the rest of the world. So if I look at that list again, for myself, what it might play out is like, I'm a therapist, a husband, a yoga teacher, a gardener, a baker, a dog owner, and I'm queer. So it shifts into the fabric of who we are rather than being the dominant quality. And in that phase of integration, I think that's when we really come to our fullest self with our LGBTQ identity. It doesn't seem to follow uh, kind of an age developmental process, these these three things, introspection, ownership, and integration. Um, because certainly someone could be in introspection into their 40s, be married, have children, and then suddenly take ownership of their their orientation, their attraction, their who they are. Um, that they've they have felt the need to hide to 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 subvert themselves. And so, so am I, am I wrong or is, or is this kind of a, it, this seems like a very personal process and not a developmental process? Well, yeah, it is. And the thing that's so important to understand is that we don't use just coming out as in one and done. It is a coming out process. Okay. And over the course of our lifetime, as a queer man, I've had to come out in different ways over courses of my work. Um, I had to decide when I became a therapist, did I want to I openly identify as a queer therapist or did I want to keep that separate from my work identity? For me, there's not a possibility. I had to integrate it in because I'm so passionate about this work for my community. Um, when I was working in the corporate world before that, though, I worked in a corporate setting where there was like, do the, ta the, the this tiny underlined whispered message at the place that I was working was that it's okay that you're gay but we actually don't want it broadcast around in the company. So that's another point where I have to decide how am I coming out? How am I handling this? How is it when I meet new people? And so coming out is a lifelong process. It goes on over and over. And when we look at the, the developmental question, which you had also pointed out, during adolescence, we're looking at that identity versus role confusion energy. That's where adolescents start figuring out their identity, and when they are moving in a healthy way with lots of support, they create that identity of who they are that goes forward. If there's something that stalls them out, that phase is going to stall with them. So we may have someone who is going along in kind of a stalled adolescence till around they're in their 40s and they realize, I have been bisexual all along, I'm now taking ownership and identifying that aspect of myself, and then they will start the coming out process. One thing that we notice is really fascinating with um, older adults coming out is they actually, probably for the first six months to a year of the process, backslide into like adolescence. So that their actions oftentimes will feel very much like they're a teenager, you know, where they're like trying to figure out who they love and what they want to do and how they want to try and how they want to dress. So there's this, this re, uh, movement back towards adolescence when we have a later life coming out process. It's like they get they get to do something that they didn't feel they could do then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, interesting.
All right, so let's let's talk about the adolescence, and you know, because there's so many things that are different. These children have to do live shooter drills. These children have a social media overwhelm and information anarchy that we did, that you and I did not have to deal with as youth. Has coming out changed? Is it different for teens to come out now than it was when you came out when you were a kid? And that's the thing to understand. And I, I talk to parents all the time about this, not just my um, LGBTQ families, but also um, anyone who's raising an adolescent these days. When you and I grew up, we might watch the evening news with our parents. We might see like they have the morning news on to get the traffic report. And then we go about our day. These days, our kids are exposed to a 24-hour information cycle. They are constantly inundated with either news coming in or things from their friends or bullying, and they don't have a place to actually reset themselves. And I think we need to be hyper aware of that process because what's happening for a lot of kids, just your regular kids are having to go through these shooter drills who are accessing this 24-hour-a-day information cycle. They're all in a very hypervigilant state. You add having a piece of my identity that I can't authentically, comfortably bring forward yet. You have a hugely activated system, which is almost in a trauma response of fight, flight, or freeze on 24-hour-a-day basis. And you wonder why kids get depressed or highly anxious or turn to drugs or alcohol to try and soothe some of that energy. It's all, it's all happening. So now we have this kid who's going through this process. The process is they're in a heightened state just simply because they're a kid in 2020. My God, I could, I cannot imagine being a teenager in 2020. And I work with them. I work with them every day. I teach them all day long. I, and, and these kids are vulnerable and open. And I still look at and go, I, I do not understand. I have knowledge of your experience but I do not understand your experience. Now add to that. And currently we have, we have uh, 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 three children in, in either transition or um, uh, 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 a fully trans, not, uh, not, not through surgery or everything, but just how, how they, they reference themselves, how we reference them, which hall they're sleeping on all that type of stuff. And the rest of the kids are like, like it's not, it's not the thing anymore. And I tell these kids, I, I'm when, when they ask me about life when I was a kid, I, I look at them and I was like, do you understand? We had a game that we played when we were children called Smear the Queer. And it was a football game that we played. And like, like the attitude of these children is so much the information, the, 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 the commonality, the acceptance of it is so much different. And yet I watched one of our kids they identify as them there and they were opening mail from home and grandfather sent a letter and said no matter what you say i will always see you as a little girl because you're too beautiful to be a boy and this child folded up and they said guess i won't talk to my grandfather anymore and it was it the relationship was done because the child felt no support. They felt no connection. There was no attachment. And it was grandfather's fault. The child was open to the relationship until grandfather shut it down. So now we're talking about the parents. Now we talk about what's it like for a parent when the kid comes out? What, 
how come in 2020, the grandfather still had to write that? It was devastating to watch a family relationship end because I know they love their grandfather. It was, it was heartbreaking. Well, let's take you back to this grandfather growing up. And maybe in that time, like that beautiful game, the game of life came out and they played it with a little car and they were going all around the thing. So what did you put in the two front seats of that little car? You put a blue and pink thing up there. And if any kid put like a blue and blue or a pink and pink up there, they'd be like, that's not how it's done. So we look at that. The game of life is not played where you can have a same sex partner or love in your life. This is what people were growing up with. The thing that I think is so empowering these days is that our kids are saying there's not just male and female, there's not just gay and straight, but there's an amazing, amazing array of options in those spaces when we're looking at sexual orientation and gender identification. And they're saying, we are going to bust your binary open, that black and white zeros and one thinking, and we're going to explore. And even more important, we're going to ask ourselves these questions. And for me, I think that's a beautiful and empowering space for our kids to be leading us to. I think it's exciting. I think it's amazing. You know, but there are going to be parts of the extended family and maybe even the close family that aren't going to be able to walk on this journey with these LGBTQ kids. They're just not going to be able to do it. And sometimes when I work with these kids, like we might talk with your kid, is this idea that for now, maybe grandpa can't be part of your life. And that's got to be okay for right now. We don't know about next year or the year after. We don't. But we can have to learn to be okay with the right now of this. And then work together to make sure that you solidify the parts of the family where you do have the support, where you do have the love, where you do have the care. Because more than anything else, as an LGBTQ kid, all we want to know is that we are still loved. You were talking about those videos you saw earlier. You want to know why everyone cries so hard in those videos? Because they feel that if they come out, they're unlovable. And if I feel like I don't know how you're going to react to this, I may not be loved by you. That's why that tearful reaction comes, even in the most positive coming out experience. Because we feel that our LGBTQ identity is a reason why you may not love us. John, there was something you said the, the first time we did our, our podcast together and met in Cape Cod was you, we were talking about what if, you, the, the, I believe the title of the show, if my memory serves, is what if I don't understand? And your bottom line was it doesn't matter. Like, like the really, the only thing that matters is the, I love you. And that stuck with me to the point of coaching a family, an Orthodox Russian family recently where, uh, one kid is non-binary and the other has, has said, I'm a lesbian. And mom is like, whatever, I love you. And dad is like, hang on a second. This goes again. And the entire conversation that we had for an hour was you can figure this out later. Have they done anything that has ended your love for them? And he's like, no, make sure that that's being said. If you can say that every day for two weeks, there's your homework, then everything's going to start to slip. Everything's going to start to shift and everything will make space. doesn't matter if you ever understand it. 
All you have to do is reaffirm. I love you. I, you can even say after that, I don't get it. I'm, I, I, I've struggled to figure this out. Everything I've ever been taught and believe goes against this, but I love you. Just let the internal dialogue remain internal because, uh, and that's it. Well, I have to say something. Your child hasn't for years because of that fear. You can shut up for a minute. You can go do your work. You can go to websites. You can go talk to other people because that's what your child's had to do for God knows how long to just wonder if they have a place in this tribe. So it's that, that one has always stuck with me. Is it more than that? How else can parents be supportive for this journey? I mean, that's, that's such a no brainer to just say, just, just spit it out, text it. If you have to, I love you stop with those three words, but what else, what else can we do? Well, I want to address the religious spiritual piece with you um, as we go into this. Cause I think this is a really big piece of the puzzle that plays out in a lot of families. And I was uh, in a training. Um, oh, I can't remember her name right now. It, she is a pastor in Texas. She has a gay son. And she did a lot of conversations about this idea of her religion and being embracing of her gay child. And her ultimate message that came out is whenever you are questioning how do I deal with my gay child, my transgender child, my bisexual child, my queer child? She says, I want you to go to a quiet place and I want you to pray to your God. And I want to ask you to ask your God, what do I do for my child? And she said, almost every person that I've advised to do that has come back when they turn off the noise of the story of their church or the story of the media and listen to their personal relationship to their God, the answer always comes back is simply love them. And I share that with parents a lot. It's like, go to a quiet place, turn off the noise, pray to your God, because there's a vital connection for you and see what comes back. And it always is, is love your child. And so that, I think, is a really powerful tool when people's religion and spiritual beliefs are a very strong part of the fabric of their family. Wow, that is, that is potent. I, that's over the top potent because I, I really doubt any family could, could authentically come back after a conversation with their own deity and say, God says you're wrong. Like, like a God says you're bad. God says that you're whatever, whatever the, the, the men throughout the years have decided what God is saying. You got to go straight to source. Okay. What else? What else can parents do? So let's talk about you know, like some of the real basic things. I talk to parents about the idea that the first thing you can do, because this, your kid, as we talked earlier, has probably been thinking, contemplating, been introspective about this for a while. So when you hear about it, they've processed a lot of it. Give yourself time to know that you are not expected to have all the answers. Let's go with this my basic thing. Hug, love, embrace, support. Okay? Then realize you might need to educate yourself. You might need to like reach out to uh, PFLAG, which is a, an amazing national, international actually organization that provides parents support. And on their site, they have lots of wonderful information. You may go to Human Rights Campaign. They have a lot of beautiful information as well, too. Um, you might go to Gender Odyssey if you have a transgender, non-binary, non-conforming child. They have wonderful information there. 
to find information to start answering for yourself some of those most basic questions. Because the person who does not need to be the expert on what it means to be gay or bisexual or transgender is your kid. You should not be turning to them for all the answers because I will guarantee you this, they don't have them for themselves at this point, okay? And you have to you have to question some of the sources that they might have gotten them from because, like I said, the anarchy of information on the internet means they could have, A, uh, they've been targeted. Like, like the way your child has been searching the internet is recorded and your child has been targeted. So the information that your child has that you're trying to glean understanding from is targeted to your child's search history. Like it's, it's ridiculous. So that makes so much sense. And that's the thing too, though, is it's about finding resources for parents and finding resources that are both, you know, big, but also maybe finding resources that are more local to your community. Um, in a lot of the appearances that I do, I'll often get people reaching out to me. I live in a small rural you know, community. I don't know how to access these resources. And I respond back and say, here's some resources I know, at least in your state. And you could reach out to them and they might find something more local. Because it is important sometimes to have someone right there in your community that you can connect to. So that's one of the first places I take parents is let's get some education and not make your kid... <laughs> the teacher of all that they are going through. The other thing that is so vital, and I talk about this with both the kids and the, te- and the families, to understand that there is a grieving process that is going on. And I believe I may have described this before, but I want to bring it in because for me, it's such an important concept. When we are a child, we're born, our parents give birth, they look down, and they hold the baby in their arms, they look in its eyes, and they project forward an entire lifetime for their child. They're going to go to the same high school they went in. They're going to be a cheerleader or a football player. They're going to go to college. They're going to move in next door and have a house with a white picket fence and two kids and a golden retriever. Like They project forward an entire family story. And when the kid comes out, that projection, that dream of their child gets shattered. And what we need to do is create space for those parents to pick up the pieces, meet their kid where they're at, and then all work together to develop what we call a new dream of the future for their kid. It's not always that they're upset with their child coming out. Oftentimes, they're grieving the loss of that dream. And when I point that out to parents, it gives them the ability to say, I'm not a bad person. I'm actually going through a process myself right now. And it also means that I can get the kids educated on this and they can say, oh, okay, you're right. My parents are going through something right now. Let me ease up on them a little bit and see where this all goes. And if we can create that awareness of the process that's happening, then we move much more quickly through it and we find deeper connections for the kids. We have a, a group here, Queer Asterix, that trains our staff and works with our kids on a weekly basis. There was something that when I was interviewing Queer Asterix that I had said, and they called me on it. So, John, I expect from you in return that if I'm coming off naive, complacent, transparent, whatever, call me out. Because I, I know that what I'm about to say are, are two things that, that parents wonder and think about. And this is the conversation that they wish they could have. 
And so here's, here's the first part is that when a child comes and says, you know, well, well to, to, to me, to someone else and says, you know, I'm gay, I'm trans. My, my go-to answers before is like, I don't care. You know, I just, I want to, I want to get to know you. I want to get to know you. And queer asterisks was like, I don't care is not the right answer. And their explanation to me was, I need you to care. And what I've struggled with then is what do I say then? How do I, how do I bridge that instead of saying, oh, I don't care if you're gay or straight when they're telling me because they want me to care. They just want me to care in the right way. So how do I respond in such a way that says this person does care and it, it won't matter to our relationship that I am different than him. So how do I, how do I say this? If you talk to me about my journey as a queer person, or you talk to Soren about their journey as a queer person, you're going to hear different experiences depending on where we grew up, the people we had around us, how we traveled through that journey, the support we got or didn't get. So the thing that can be really powerful is to say, I'm honored that you shared that with me and tell me what being queer means to you. Tell me what being trans means to you. Tell me what this means to you in the world that you live in. Because connecting to the individual story takes us away from a generalized, ah, yes, I took the LGBT coming out training. So this is you. You're at this stage. This is who you are. And you work with teens and you know that they do not do well with that. They want you to pay attention to them. So for me, it's like, I'm so honored that you shared that with me. Tell me what being gay means in your world. What's it look like? What's it taste like? What's it feel like? What's the, what's the flavor of it in your world? And that allows them to be an individual coming out to you versus just a generic coming out process. Okay. So that, so I'm, instead of trying to find the right response, I'm just asking more questions, which... Yeah. And I really do say, though, I'm honored that you chose to tell me or share this with me. I am so honored that you trusted me enough to bring this piece of information to me. Because what they've done is they've basically handed you this beautiful, delicate little seashell, and they put it in your hands. And they're waiting to see how you're going to respond and react to that. And sometimes the I don't care thing is like, I don't care because I'm so woke, but you've thrown the seashell to the side of the road. It got run over by a back truck. What you do is you hold the seashell and you're like, I'm so honored you handed me this piece of information. Tell me about that curve on the seashell. Tell me about that shade of color that's under there. What is that? So it's a beautiful, avid curiosity of wanting to connect with them and their unique story and process. In that process of being woke, I stumbled on a chunk of gold when I, um, misidentified one of them and they were frustrated. They had had a bad day and they were frustrated and they snapped right back. It's him or them, please, for the love of God, get it right. And the whole class just went dead silent because I'm the owner of the place. And I said, every time I mess it up, I want you to correct me out loud in front of everybody. I want to get this right. And thank you for your courage. And I haven't, I haven't messed it up, except now that I've said that I'm going to go back, teach life skills and completely blow it. But the permission for them to teach me has been offered. And that, that helped a lot in our relationship, especially at a moment where I, I could have blown it. I could have really put a wall between us. So that helped. 
So here's my second question that has come from having multiple uh, children in the facility who are in transition or have declared neutrality or, or one of the other. And this is, this is something I'm, I kind of feel vulnerable with this question because I don't know how to ask it. So I'm just going to come straight out. Is there a body dysmorphia that we need to be aware with that takes place when they go to the bathroom, when they strap down, when they, when they get ready for bed, is there is there a body loathing that they're going through that, that if they're identifying as the uh, opposite gender, do, are they constantly in a, in a space of wishing they had different genitals or different, is that question even appropriate? Like, I don't know how to, how to be with that experience of seeing them come out of the bathroom and go, are they sad now? Are they more depressed than they were before? So I'm going to pull this apart a little bit. Because once again, you ask deep questions, dude. Um, I would just want to correct you in one thing and encourage you to look at the idea of not using opposite gender. Okay. Because once again, that's stating that they're living in the binary. Uh. But instead that as you see them in their affirmed gender, the gender they are, not the gender they were assigned at birth. So it isn't always opposite. You need to be aware of that. That there is gender dysphoria and body dysmorphia that takes place for a lot of, of kids that are under the trans umbrella. And we need to be aware and support them in that, that experience. Do we need to hover over them and imagine that's what they're going through? We do not. But we do need to create spaces to be able to talk about it. If you think, if you have a trans male in your um, facility, and he was assigned female at birth. And while he's there, he has this period. You don't imagine that that's not traumatizing, okay? You need to understand that that is a traumatic experience for them. And to be able to sit with that in a space where they can talk about it, not always driven by us, but by them understanding the safety of all of the people around them to be able to talk about that openly. I think. For me personally, in the work that I do, I always signal on a regular and consistent basis that there is space for us to talk about anything. Um, I have a background as a sex educator, so a lot of my kids, you know, will talk about like I'm having these feelings, and then we'll be like, "Oh, okay, so is this, this, and this?" And I'll use like correct terms and all of this, and they're like, "Oh, I didn't know we were going there." Um, but what that does is it sets up a future space where, you know, a kid can come in and say like, okay, I had sex for the first time and this is what happened because they know that I have set up a space and environment where they can feel free to talk about it. And to understand this sensation of body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria, um, I attended a training once um, and it was described this way and I thought it was so brilliant. So, if you're in your studio right now recording this, but someone had a TV on in the other room, you might hear that sound a little bit in the other room. And you might tell them, oh, can you turn that down? I need, to, I need quiet. But gender dysphoria is having that TV on 24-7, that there's this constant check-in chatter going on in the back of this person's brain. You know, did someone clock me? Did I pass in that moment? Has my body look in these clothes? How do I feel? Where's my voice? When I laugh, did my voice give me away? That there's this constant chatter of checking in in the background. 
And that's something that I think is really important for us to be aware of as we're supporting these trans kids on their journey. That's incredible. Here's the thing that I do talk to a lot of my parents about. You do not have to be perfect in this process. Just like your kid as they're growing up doesn't have to be perfect in anything that they do because they're going to stumble and fall. And that's how we learn. You as a parent are probably going to make some serious mistakes in supporting your LGBTQ kid. And that's why having the support of fellow parents who are on this journey is one of the most valuable things you can have. Because then when you misgender your kid and another parent says like, oh yeah, I did that for a while and I got my hand slapped every day, that you can have someone who relates to your story. You know, one of the things in the style that I teach in is understanding the humanity of each of us who's trying to do this work more effectively. Yes, we want to hold ourselves to a higher standard, but we don't want to lock ourselves down so much that we're no longer authentic. Because if we're not authentic with these kids, they're not going to trust us for anything. That goes as a parent, as a therapist, as the leader of a, a center. In any situation, our authenticity, owning when we make a mistake, is like, you know what? You're right. I misgendered you. I apologize. Breathe. Let's move on. Are really, really important things to do because that's going to create more space for love to creep into the relationships and be the dominant force in taking this journey of coming out. John, how are parents going to find you, get connected with you, find your website, that type of stuff? Let's shameless self-promotion time, brother. Let's, let's give it to them. Absolutely. So the best place to find me is on my website, which is johnsovec.com. That's J-O-H-N-S-O-V-E-C.com. And they can also find me on gaytherapy.com, which is a site that's specifically for LGBTQ kids and their families who are coming out. Is that gay so therapy or sorts. gay teen therapy? Gay teen therapy. Okay. Yep. And they can find me there. They can feel free to email me and reach out and I can offer resources or support and they can work with me directly. Um, and also too, if you just Google my name, you're going to find all kinds of amazing resources that I have put out in the world. You can also follow me on Twitter at, at John Sovec. So I've got johnsovec.com. And for, for parents, it's not a B, it's a V as in Victor, S-O-V-E-C, johnsovec.com, uh, gayteentherapy.com. And then on Facebook with John Sovec Therapy and Twitter at John Sovec. Get online, find John. Um, get his information. Like I said, a conversation, I had a half hour conversation and then we talked for like an hour after that, but a half hour conversation a year ago stuck with me to a, a coaching experience. We've released this at the beginning of October of 2020 and it's National Coming Out Week. It's National Coming Out Day. This is the time that perhaps you have a teenager who's been spending a year saying, next year I'm gonna do this. And so for parents, let's hold each other's feet to the fire to do this well and to do this right. That if your kid comes home and says their friend came out or someone came out at school or that, that we are in the best parts of our mind as a parent and, and whether we understand or not, I don't think matters as much as can we love, can we stay connected, can we take care of ourselves, take care of our adult relationships so that we can take care of these teens who are going through such an important moment in their lives. So for this, 
having John here for this special episode. Uh, this it's it's the best. This is the support we need as parents. I've been doing this work for 20 years and I'm still fumbling this ball and picking it up and running for the end zone with it because we have to create a space not for these kids, for every kid, no matter what they bring, can we walk through these moments with them? So huge thanks to John Sovek again, johnsovek.com, gayteentherapy.com, on Facebook and on Twitter. Go find him. Go find his work. And uh, parents, remember to take care of yourselves first, your adult relationships second, your children third, so that you can do your best work with your children. My huge thanks to Deepin Productions, who does the music and all the engineering of these podcasts, and to Your Cause Consulting, which keeps me on track, making sure that we're not just trying to do a podcast, that we're doing a podcast that's going to help parents help their teens. Thank you so much for joining me. Listen, like, subscribe, and share, and please leave a review on iTunes so we can help parents find help to help their kids. I'll see you next week, everybody.